this morning we're starting a new series on the book of James. And uh, James is a fascinating book. If you've been around the church at all, you probably maybe heard a series preached through James. We're going to take just four weeks to get through this book. But the book of James is full of practical advice for living the Christian life. Uh, James um, puts the pressure on us as people and the things we can do and need to do in order to grow as Christians. Uh, The scripture teaches us, of course, that Jesus came to walk this earth. He went to the cross. He bled and died on the cross so that we could have our sins forgiven. The Bible teaches us that if we put our trust in what Jesus did on the cross, that we can have salvation, forgiveness of our sins. We can have forgiveness and spend eternity with God. But the truth is that though um, that saving faith, and faith is all that's required to be justified or made right with God, there's also a big part of our salvation the Bible calls sanctification. And that is the process of becoming more like God. And so James writes to that aspect of our salvation or the Christian life. He says, listen, you have to do something. You can't just trust in Jesus and then step back and go, well, I've got my ticket to heaven. I'm going to live however I want. No. There, there's an involvement. There's, a, there's a, a relationship with God that involves growing and maturing and changing. So this is what James addresses. There's a guy named Ed Stetzer who's a leader in the, um, in the, in the church. And he wrote uh, a few years ago, he wrote on this idea of uh, Christianity and he did some studies on the country, on the, the nation, our country, the United States. And he found that about 25% of the people in this country would claim to be a Christian. But he saw that within that group, that 25%, there were three different groups that make up that 25%. One of them, he called, um, their Christians, he called them cultural Christians. So those are people that have a connection, a family history of being connected to a church, all right? So that's groups like maybe Irish Catholic. You know, I got some Irish Catholic in my background. My uh, grandmother on my mom's side was Irish Catholic. And so there's this connection where, hey, we're Irish Catholic. That's who we are. You know, it's part of our family history. There's also like Southern evangelicals, you know, Southern Baptists. There's a lot of people go, yeah, that's what my, but they don't go to church, don't really have any connection to church. It's not really involved at all, but they would say they're a Christian because of that connection that's family, uh, their family history. Then he found a group, another third of the 25% he called congregational Christians. And those are people that maybe grew up in church, going to Sunday school or confirmation or whatever that was in church. So you grew up there, learned some stuff, had that involvement as a kid. And then maybe left church, went to college, did your thing, uh, got, found somebody, wanted to get married, came back into the church to get married, right? And so there's a little bit of involvement. Maybe go to church on Christmas and Easter, you know, um, occasionally, but not real uh, a serious commitment or connection to a church. So that was another third. And then he found a third that he called convictional Christians. And those are people that actually are in church regularly. They're trying to live out their faith. And, uh, and so uh, Ed Stetzer said, hey, listen, this is a little, could be a little discouraging that that's the makeup of Christians in our country. But the truth is that we're kind of moving to the place where if you're going to identify as a Christian, it's something that's meaningful to you. It's something that you're trying to live out, which is not a bad thing. And I think James saw this type of dynamic in the early days of the Christian faith. James was uh, the half-brother of Jesus. 
So Joseph and Mary were his parents. He grew up with Jesus as a sibling. And uh, the interesting uh, thing about Jesus' family is if you recall, um, in the Gospels, we're told of a point where Jesus' family came to get him. He was in ministering to a group of people, and they came and they said, send Jesus out. They were a little concerned about him, what he was doing. They weren't sure that they approved. <laughs> Not sure that they saw that he was uh, somebody that you know, should be doing what he's doing. So they came to get him, and there's that famous line and passage where Jesus says, you know, they tell him, hey, your, your family's outside. They want you. And he said, my family are those that do the work of God. And so he made this distinction. It was a little bit of a harsh uh, statement, but Jesus was saying, look, I'm here on mission. God is my father and I'm serving him. And the people that want to be a part of what I'm doing, those people are my family. And so uh, it's kind of a powerful passage. But what's interesting is James, though he had a little doubt in the beginning, grew to become a follower of Jesus and to see him as the Messiah. And he believed. And that's one of the powerful um, evidences that Jesus was more than just a good teacher, a powerful leader, but that his brother grew to see him and confirmed that he was the Messiah. And so James became a leader in the church. James, if you want to turn to the book of James, that's where we're going to be today in chapter one. And it starts off, James identifies who his audience is. He says, hey, I'm a servant. Um, uh, He says, this is a letter from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, He identifies who he is, that that is uh, his identity. He says he's writing, I'm writing to the 12 tribes. Um, who are scattered abroad, Jewish believers scattered abroad, greetings. So he's saying, listen, I'm writing to Jewish people who are following Jesus. And he identifies himself as a slave of God, which is common in the New Testament. And so this is where James is coming from, writing to those Christians, those, those new fledgling followers. Book of James is probably one of the first books that was written that we have in the New Testament. And so James is going to put that pressure on us to step out and live by faith. He's going to tell us that we have things that we can do regarding our salvation, that we must move to be obedient. We've got to act the correct way. We've got to get involved in our faith. And so faith in action is kind of the name of the series. And so we're going to spend four weeks in James, and uh, I know you're, you're going to enjoy it. I hope that you're challenged and, uh, and pushed to walk out your faith a little bit more. Um, God wants to see us changed and transformed. As I said, Jesus didn't just come and die to give us a ticket to heaven, but he, gave, he came to give us life. And real life is found in walking with the God who made you, the God who loves you, the God who created you exactly to be who you are because he made you. And so that's his design. So if you would join me, uh, let's pray, and we'll dig into the book of James. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to be here together Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. Thank you for preserving the scriptures for us. Thank you that we can have confidence in them, that they're inspired by you. They're your words for us. God, speak into our lives. Challenge us. Stretch us. Help us to understand you in a deeper way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're in one of those in one of those three categories, if you're in one of those first two, uh, you're a cultural Christian or you'd say, um, you know, uh, congregational Christian, you have some connection to the church, but it's not uh, an intimate relationship where you, you feel like you know God, the book of James is going to be for you. It's challenging. It's going to uh, help you uh, understand how the rubber hits the road 
so to speak, when it comes to the Christian faith, and, uh, and it's just a great book. Um, James will challenge us that if our faith is just uh, saving, hey, I trust in Jesus, yeah, he's, I'm a Christian, and that's all that your faith does in your life, that that faith, James is going to say, is dead if it's not active and living, and he's going to challenge the idea of whether or not you can really have saving faith if it's not an active living faith. Um, real faith ushers us into the presence of God. We are aware of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. We're challenged. We're convicted. We have to grow and move and, and change. We have to work to become better tomorrow than I was today. Now, um, physical work, you know, just working to become a better person is not how you live the Christian life. In other words, we can try in our flesh to get better. We're not going to do it. We have to do it in conjunction or out of a relationship with God. Um, we can try to become better. We can try to live out uh, this aspect of sanctification, this process of our salvation. And, um, and it can be tough to see life change. It can be hard. Sometimes we get discouraged, and sometimes we discover that we are our own worst enemy when it comes to living for God and growing in our faith. There was a little girl who got home from Sunday school one day, and the teacher had taught a lesson uh, out of Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 which says this, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. And so a little girl got home and she asked her mom, what, what does this mean? How does this work? And the, the mom said, well, listen, um, this is what it means. It means that when you are good and kind and thoughtful and when you're obedient, you are letting Jesus' light shine through your life so that others can see him through you. So when you do the right thing, when you make a decision to be obedient to God, then other people can see Jesus in your life. That's what this means. So a little girl said, okay, that's great. And so uh, next Sunday came and she went back to church. Well, there was a little disturbance in her class. She got into a little bit of an argument with one of the other little girls in the class. And it got kind of intense. It got so bad that the teacher had to go get her mom to bring her into the class to get things calmed down. So her mom came in. She said, sweetie, what, what happened? Don't you remember the lesson we talked about last week about letting your light shine so that other people can see Jesus in you? And the little girl blurted out, Mom, I have blowed myself out. <clears throat> Listen, sometimes <laughs> we are the ones who, uh, who extinguish the flame of faith that lives in us. We know that song, this is the light of mine, and you know, I'm going to let it shine. And then, but sometimes we're the reason that it's not shining. We struggle with our own internal conflicts and difficulties, the sin that we battle against. And so James is going to be real straight and direct and talk to us about the fact that I believe the Scriptures support the idea that we have free will. We are made in the image of God, but we have some power to make decisions about our life. There are people that are Christians don't believe in free will. They only believe the sovereignty of God and that God's will is all that controls everything and we don't really have choices. I don't agree with that. As I look at the scriptures, especially the book of James, but other places, I see that we're made in the image of God, which means that we have a likeness to God. We have intelligence, we have a soul and a spirit, and we have the ability to choose. God is a free will being, right? God has power and choice. Some people argue, well, if we have free will, then that means we're more powerful than God. And to that, I would say no. <laughs> uh, we have choice. We have power, a modicum of power, but it submits to his will and authority. 
I can't make a decision that would thwart God's will. That's what it means to be sovereign. He is overall. And to me, it is much more demonstration of God's power to understand that God isn't controlling everything. That's not how he gets his will done, to control everything, which is how some people view it. But I view it as God has given all of us freedom to choose, and God is getting his will done through those choices, whether they're good or bad. Take, for example, Jesus, who came to the earth, lived a life perfectly, went to the cross, was uh, condemned to die and killed as an act of evil, right? His life was taken. Um, God's will, in a sense, as Jesus came, was that Jesus would present the kingdom of God and the people would follow that. But in an act of evil, Jesus was killed. But through that act of evil, through that disobedience of those human beings, salvation was brought to the world. So I, I see free will at play, and James is definitely going to dig into that. So let's, let's get started. James chapter 1. First point is this. In order for you to live out your faith and to fulfill your God-given destiny, you need to be mature and strong. You need to be mature and strong. James chapter 1, starting in verse 2, read along with me, says this. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, get this, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. James shows us that there is a purpose in trials. We took a trip, as I said, up to Montana. We had, uh, you know, a bunch of pickups pulling trailers and I can assure you that every one of those men that packed up and planned, I know I had a trailer go up there. Man, I made sure that thing was ready to go. And my prayer was that we would have no problems. Isn't that how we usually pray? God, please make my path smooth. Like, make it so I don't have any issues or problems. But sure enough, on the way up there, one of our pickups broke down. We're on the side of the road trying to figure out what's going on. Now, what's your first reaction when a trial, when an issue, when a problem comes into your life? Probably, if you're like me, you go, man, things would be so much better if I didn't have problems. If this didn't happen, I would get so much more done if things would just smooth out, right? If those problems, so I spend a lot of time praying, God, please take the problems away. Make my path smooth, level it out, right? No problems or issues. No injuries, no health problems, no financial crisis. James tells us that that is the opposite of the way we should see it. That in actuality, for us to grow and to mature and to become men and women of faith, we must have problems and tribulations and trials. You'll find that the people that are slow to mature in this life are the people that don't have any problems. Their parents take care of all those issues and make everything go away so they don't have any struggle. Because what we realize about human nature is maturity comes through struggle. It's the same thing true in our spiritual life. And so James actually says, instead of getting frustrated when something goes wrong, instead of getting down and having that, you know, that anger or that frustration or whatever that takes over, you should see a problem as an opportunity. You should say, thank you, Jesus, for a problem. Man, I thought my day was going to be uh, worry-free and I wasn't going to grow today. But instead, you offered me an opportunity to grow up, to mature, to be challenged. I know it's tough. 
I know I can stand up here and say this, give you a pep talk. Look, I know it's hard. I grumbled a little bit when we had, when the pickup broke down, you know, when things broke down during the week, when the, when the tin for the roof was cut too short. My first reaction was, thanks God for a trial, because now we can learn to trust in you more. I didn't, man. I got frustrated sometimes, all right? And that's, honestly, that's our first reaction so often. But James is saying, listen, let me flip this thing upside down for you. Let me show you the reality of your life. When God is involved in your life, when you're walking with him, see, now problems and trials and troubles are a good thing. They're an opportunity for you to grow, and grow you must do. God's intention is not for you to stay where you're at. To be a baby Christian, right, is not the goal. And to see uh, someone who's been a Christian for a long time and isn't growing spiritually is disappointing. It's sad. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And so we realize we've got to engage life. We've got to see the problems and trials in the way that God intends them. He goes on to help us a little bit more. He says, listen, if you face a problem, you're not sure how to get through. You don't know what to do about this. You don't know what the solution is. You're not sure what the growth is that God's trying to take you through. He gives us the next step. In verse five, he says this, if you need wisdom, if you have a problem, you're not sure what to do with it. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver. For a person divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave on the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world. They are unstable in everything they do. James says, listen, if you're walking with God, you're going to face trials and tribulations. Those are just opportunities for you to grow. So be joyful when they happen. God is investing in you. He's seeing fit to allow you the opportunity to grow. See it for what it is. If you face a problem and you don't know what to do with it, and you can't get through it, then ask God for wisdom. He will give it to you. Why is it so often we just pray that God would take away our problems? He'll just fix it. God, just do it for me. You know, that's the worst thing that could be done for you is that God would just come along and fix all your problems and solve everything. What are you learning in that? How are you growing if that's what he does, right? God is a good parent. He doesn't, he doesn't engage in dysfunctional parenting. He takes the process on for our good. And so he says, listen, come to me. I'll give you advice. I'll give you advice. Have you ever um, sought advice from somebody looking for what to do? I know I've done this in my life. I've gone to somebody that is, they've been where I'm at. And I say, what do I do? How do I solve this problem? What is it? And I want them to give me the step-by-step process to get out of the jam I'm in and to get things moving again. And uh, so often in my life, as I've engaged those leaders and individuals and mentors, what they give me is wisdom. Almost never do they give me the answer. And it can be frustrating because then I got to go back and wrestle with how do I apply that wisdom to my situation? It's so interesting. The Bible is very similar. It gives us wisdom. God is trying to grow us to have the ability to think like he thinks, to see our situation, understand how to handle a problem or an issue. Again, if we were robots, if, if we didn't have free will, I think God would give us that step-by-step instruction manual and do this and do that, and that's all you have to do. No, he's trying to teach us to think. What he wants to do is set us free, not to be bound by the sin that binds us up, but to be set free to see this world 
the way he has created it, to see this life the way we're meant to live it, and to be able to run. And, and James is teaching us that. Listen, if you're asking God for wisdom, make sure that you're not putting trust in God and whatever else, whoever else, your own wisdom, your own ideas. So often that's how we do it. Put your faith in God alone. Look to him alone. So what we learn from James in this first section, trials have a purpose, a good purpose. They're to help us develop endurance. You're not going to be able to uh, make it through the trials in the, the best fashion the first time. You're not gonna be super successful the first time you face a trial, right? It's a growing process. You've gotta develop the endurance to handle trials. Um, at one point in my life, I decided that I would train to run a marathon. And I can promise you that I did not go out and run a marathon distance the first time I went out. Uh, it took months of training. I had to train my body to handle that kind of exertion. It's the same way with trials. You're developing endurance. Just see the process. It's about engaging in the race. It's about running. It's about moving with God. The Greeks had a race in their Olympic games that was unique. The winner was not the runner who finished first, but the runner who finished with his torch still lit. God asked us to follow him. In this world, we're going to have problems. We're going to fail. We're going to fall on our face. I've done it more times than I care to admit. Okay? This happens. Perfection is not something you're probably going to attain as a follower of Jesus. However, crossing the finish line is the goal. Getting there first, that's great. If you want to be competitive and do that, and, and the Apostle Paul gives us some instructions on how to win the race, but finishing the race is oftentimes what matters most. Endurance. Endurance is a key to mature faith. When your faith is mature, you will not get discouraged any longer, or the times you get discouraged will be diminished. Discouragement is a dissatisfaction with the past, distaste for the present, and distrust of the future. It is ingratitude for the blessings of yesterday, indifference to the opportunities of today, and insecurity regarding strength for tomorrow. It is unawareness of the presence of beauty, unconcern for the needs of our fellow man, and unbelief in the promises of old. It is impatience with time, immaturity of thought, and impoliteness to God. God's trying to grow us, build endurance into our lives. <clears throat> Pray for wisdom. When you don't understand a trial or how to get through it, seek God. He promises to meet us where we're at. But godly wisdom is what we must seek. You must come to God with humility, on your knees in a place of, teach me God, please help me to learn how to handle this. Help me to see it the way you do. That is the process <clears throat> of moving to maturity. As you live out your faith and work to become all that God intended you to be, you need God's view of earthly wealth. James goes on to say in verse 9, he writes these words, Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them, for they will fade away like a little flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers, the little flower droops and falls, and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all their achievements. James indicates that in the church, different than in the world, 
those with humble means, those who live uh, closer to paycheck to paycheck, who have less in terms of earthly possessions, that God has actually selected you as a person to honor because of your position. So in the world, we know that the more you have, the more you acquire, it moves you up the ladder. So that if you have the most stuff, you're the most important person. That's how we do it in the world. But in the church, in God's kingdom, it is the opposite of that. Because what we find through Jesus' teaching is that worldly possessions, wealth, become an obstacle to spiritual growth and maturity. Because Jesus said that it is more difficult or it is easier for a camel to get through an eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter heaven. Jesus said that wealth and possessions will be an obstacle to you get connected to God, to you living for God, knowing you need God. See, wealth can hide all of that. A person's able to accomplish uh, things and have uh, possessions. What do I need God for? I've run into so many people like that. What do I need God for? I have everything I need. Life's going great. I'm able to accomplish and succeed. And when we think the target is wealth and possessions, getting the most stuff, when that becomes the goal of the target, then all of a sudden our focus is off. And God is saying to us, James is writing to us, God's will, God's instruction to us is that dependence on God is the goal. Looking to God for strength and support and provision. Don't allow earthly possessions to be what you're aimed at. If your goal is to acquire the most stuff you can and that's your measure of success in life, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. Wealth, measure wealth not by the things you have, but by the things you have for which you would not take money. Real value in life is found in the things money can't buy. Money can buy you a really nice, comfortable bed with a lot of features, but it cannot buy you a good night's sleep. Money can buy you things that make you happy and distract you, shiny stuff. You're like, that's cool. Wow, I feel good because I have that. I can go play with that. I can have fun. But it can't give you peace, can't give you joy, can't give you a sense of fulfillment. Chasing money and possessions will distract you from real life. It's a warning we've got to hear in this country because the truth is we're all wealthy. (laughs) You guys know that. I'm sure you've heard that. We're at the top 25 percentile of the world's wealth. Most of us are in the top 10 percent. I mean, we have so much. And it's so easy for us to start to think that the stuff is what is made. If I just had that, if I could just get that, if I could just attain that. And we get folk, we're, we're like on a, uh, a hamster on the wheel, you know, running. And there's no life in that, guys. There's no life in that. God wants to put us on things that really matter. He wants to get us connected to real life. So don't get distracted by stuff. As you grow in your faith and seek to understand your struggle to obey God, you should know the true source of evil. Where does evil come from? Uh, One of the philosopher's questions that has been positioned or or put out there in this world that many believe is just a... you know, impossible to get through, is this, uh, this progression of thought that if there's a God who's all-powerful, he can do anything, he's overall. And if he's all, uh, and if he's good, okay, if he's a good God, then how can evil exist? So this is the question that many think just trumps everything and you can't get through it, and you can't figure it out, and it disproves the existence of the God of the Bible. The truth is that to me, that question 
does not disprove the God of the Bible, and it's actually not that hard to answer. Where does evil come from? James teaches us this in James chapter 1, starting verse 12. He says this, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation, here's the key, comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect, that is a gift from God coming down to us. Or that is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, become his prized possession. Good comes from God. Evil comes from us, comes from you. There's a lot of evil in the world. Most of the time, most of us like to think that we're trying to be good, trying to do the right thing. I'm not evil, Pastor. You don't know me. I know you don't know me. You're just saying that. No, I'm not evil. I'm a good person. I'm trying hard to do the right thing. Listen, um, evil does come from within us. God created the world perfect and pure. He put Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, here you go. Beautiful, perfect place. Don't eat from this tree. They had to be tested. They were innocent, okay? Their will had not been tested. When it was, they chose to disobey. And so do you, and so do I. Walter Kelly, the author of the cartoon Pogo, said, we have met the enemy, and he is us. Sometimes evil can seem good to us. It seems like the only solution in a situation is to maybe do the wrong thing, but it seems like the right thing in a certain situation. Cash, check, or charge, asked the sales clerk as the lady made her purchases. She fumbled in her wallet to get, uh, fumbled in her purse to get her wallet, and the, the cashier saw a TV remote control in her purse. And he said, ma'am, do you typically walk around with a TV remote control in your purse? She said, no, my husband wouldn't come shopping with me So I figured this was the most evil thing I could do to him and not get arrested. Sometimes evil seems like the right thing to do, but the truth is we are the source. When you return evil for evil, you are contributing to the evil in the world, right? Don't allow that to be lost on you. That's why Jesus tries to teach us to return good for evil. Because then we're actually contributing to the good that God wants brought to the earth. He wants us to be good. He created us to be good. But our character is flawed. We're fallen, broken, sinful creatures. And if anybody that's honest knows that's true. We're not perfect. And so we must be taught by God to begin to do good. We've got to have a relationship with him so that he can begin to change and transform us. You and I need to be better tomorrow than we were yesterday. And James is saying, look, you can, you play a role in it. <laughs> you need to have, you, you, you have some responsibility to grow, to be obedient, to engage this faith. Don't just sit on the sidelines and say, yeah, I'm a Christian, and, but I'm not, eh, I'm trying. You know. No, man, get involved. Get into it. Grow. Move. The world needs us to be engaged as Christians. 
In order for you to become a powerful person of God and in order for your faith to grow strong, you should stop trying to control your life. Stop trying to control your life. James uh, continues in verse 19. He says this, Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak. Two ears, one mouth. And slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So get rid of all filth and evil in your lives. And humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts. For it has the power to save your souls. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness of God. When things go wrong, when we're trying to control our lives and the way it goes, we're trying to make sure nothing happens bad. I got to make sure that person does what I want them to do. And this person, everything's got to happen the way I want it to so I don't get upset, so I'm not ruffled, so I don't get anxious, so I don't get discouraged. See, we're trying to control life. This is what gets us into trouble as human beings. The, the dysfunctional behavior that comes out of us when we try to control our lives is things like addiction, stress, anger, anxiety, depression. This is how we start to behave when we're trying to control our lives. God says here, James, encourage us. Listen, here's what you need to do. Receive the word of God. Receive the word of God. Get on your knees. God, give me your word. Help me understand how to live this life according to your plan, your direction. I'm not gonna get angry I'm going, to be, I'm going to slow down a little bit. I'm going to listen more to you. And I'm going to take less control. Giving God control of your life um, allows you to eliminate the dysfunctional behavior that will slow you down and stop you from becoming who God created you to be. Many Christians, I find, even Christians struggle with and even maybe a little disdain for living a life of real faith really trusting God with everything. They, they consider it weak-minded. Your head is just in the clouds, right? You gotta be here on earth. It's the real life. We gotta live it. And, and people get frustrated with this life of faith. I had a friend that I was, he was coming to Christ. He was in my life group and he was moving towards Jesus. But he was a salesman. He sold uh, kitchen cabinets for a company in Denver. And he would go to a, sale, uh, to a person's house. He'd make the presentation. And he used to get so frustrated. He'd say, go talk to these Christians. And they'd say, well, thank you, Jeff, for your presentation. We need to pray about it. What do you need to pray about it? You either want these cabinets or you don't. Like, come on, let's make a decision. You know, he got so frustrated with that. And granted, Christians sometimes use that. You know, like, well, I need to pray about this. Really, it means no. They just don't want to be, you know, they want to be nice and so I know that's true, but I said, Jeff, no, really, they should be praying about it. Uh, good Christians who are engaged in their faith pray about their decisions. It's, it's true. It's a real thing. It might frustrate you, but just relax. Like, it'll be okay. If God wants you to make the sale, you will. Well, there's a story of a farmer in a Midwestern state who had a strong disdain for religious things. As he plowed his field on Sunday mornings, he would shake his fist at the church people going by as they headed to church. October came, and the farmer had the finest crop ever. The best in the entire county, in fact. When the harvest was complete, he placed an advertisement in the local paper which belittled Christians for their faith in God. Uh, near the end of his diatribe, he wrote these words, Faith in God must not mean much if someone like me can prosper. The response from the Christians in the community was quiet and polite. In the next edition of the town paper, a small ad appeared. It read simply this, God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. Hey, listen, uh, 
the Psalms, the book of Psalms full of uh, the psalmist, typically David, looking around the world and seeing the evil prosper. Why is it, God, that the evil prosper and I've got nothing but difficulties? Why is it that they are doing great and they're wealthy and they've got everything they want, no troubles, and here I am trying to follow you and I'm getting persecuted and beat up, right? That dichotomy. But the truth is that financial prosperity is not the true measure of prosperity. Joy, peace, satisfaction, these are things that don't come from having a bumper crop or selling a bunch of widgets or making a lot of money. I know many wealthy people who are miserable have no quality of life because they don't know how to live. They're not connected to the God who made them. In order for you to realize the power of your salvation, you should be walking the walk, not just talking the talk. James chapter 1, verse 22, he goes on to say this, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says, and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. You are not saved to simply have a ticket to heaven and walk through life on your own as you want, living like everyone else. You were saved to be different. Jesus sacrificed his life. He shed blood on Calvary so that you could be saved to live a different life, to walk with him, to understand what life is really all about, to be set free from sin and bondage and unleashed to make a difference in the world for God. This is God's intention and this is why he died on the cross. Walk the walk. Don't just talk the talk. The world, is phone, uh, the world is full of phony religious people. And so if you're going to say you belong to Jesus, you should be a genuine Christian. James goes on to say this uh, in verse 26. He says, if you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Religion has become a dirty word in our world. So many people say, I'm not religious. No, I'm not religious. Even a lot of Christians say they're not religious. Harry Fosdick wrote these words. He said, some people have just enough religion to make themselves miserable and everyone else miserable, right? Because uh, having a little bit of religion usually makes you worse than if you didn't have any. It's not good. So I understand the backlash and the disdain for religion. But James doesn't back off the word religion. He says, you should have pure and good religion. Be a religious person that's authentic, that really lives out what you say. The, Danish century, uh, the 19th century Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard identified two kinds of religion, religion A and religion B. The first is faith in name only. It is the practice of attending church without genuine faith in the living Lord. Religion B, on the other hand, is a life-transforming, destiny-changing experience. It is a definite commitment to the crucified and risen Savior, which establishes an ongoing personal relationship between a forgiven sinner and a gracious God. Genuine faith leads to action. Genuine faith leads to action. I cannot stay the same. I've got to move. I've got to change. I've got to grow. I've got to develop. 
I go through seasons where I flatline a little bit, things aren't happening. I get that. We all go through that. But a living faith is one that has to move. James says, genuine religion is an adherence to and a concern for the things that don't get you a lot of accolades or credit. Your name's not going to get in the paper. You're not going to get recognized in the church for being the best, you know, most important person. The things that real, pure, and genuine religion attend to are the things that may be behind the scenes, but that the things that God cares about the most. Faith and holiness are inextricably linked. Obeying the commands of God usually involves believing the promises of God. I want to encourage you. I want to press you to move into a growing, active, alive faith a relationship with God that's dynamic and moving. You need it. I need it. It's God's intention for us. So my prayer is through this series we continue to grow, that if we've hit a flat line, if we've slowed down a little bit, or if we've just never experienced that, that we would be awakened to the desire that God has to grow us and move us. Let's, let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the way that you uh, press us you press us. You are a God who cares, and quite frankly, you expect a lot out of your children. You expect us to stay connected to you, to stay true to you, to love you and you alone. And Father, I pray that you would continue to press us and, and uh, stir us, make us uncomfortable with where we're at so that we're, we're motivated to take a step forward. God, I want to lift up a couple of individuals in our church that are going through um, some health issues. Um, they've had some surgery this past week. Father, I pray for Brian Hazard, that you'd bring healing to his body. Father, continue to restore him. Uh, Father, pray for Michelle Hunter as she had surgery last week too. Father, bring healing to their bodies. God, I know we have many others who are struggling and uh, fighting with different issues, be it health or financial. Father, we're in the midst of a crisis as a country. There's so much unrest. Father, I pray that you would uh, bring your peace into our lives. Bring your strength and your presence into our lives so we can be an example to others of what it means to walk with you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.